Hey guys, tonight's podcast is on rehabilitation with myself and Olivia. Olivia will be talking for the first part of this, explaining her extensive knowledge on rehab and a bit about what it is and the different phases. I'll be coming in later to comment on some prehab and more so exercise or correct exercise prescription for rehab type clients. Cool. So first of all, we'll just go over basically what rehab is. So it is the recovery from an injury or illness and the goal being to get back to optimal or pre-injury performance, whatever that may be, um, as efficiently and quickly as possible. And when I say quickly, it does come with some um, context in that we want to consider the long-term health and well-being of the individual. So many may know that if you rush getting back into something or you don't fully um, resolve that initial injury or the initial cause, then you're most likely going to get injured in the same way again quite quickly, or you're going to do even more substantial damage. So do you want to touch on that? Any examples that you've got there, Cash? Uh, there's none I can think of right now. Okay. Um, so the kind of typical one in sports, I guess, would be is you roll your ankle and then you're off it for a little bit, doesn't get fully better, still a bit of swelling, go back um, into sport and you're most likely just going to roll it again because you haven't addressed really the cause of what... Um, just touching on that, actually, I'm curious to know what is the main cause because like my understanding from um a coaching perspective is that there's obviously a weakness there and causing the ankle to constantly roll what's the first thing you would address then what's the second thing you'd address to one help fix the situation two strengthen the situation that's what i think um would be very interesting to know yeah for sure so when it comes to all lower limb injuries the principle that we're sort of taught now is think of it as think of the lower limb as a spring so each component so the hip knee and ankle are all related so a lot of injuries can have um, local factors so that can be like weakness and poor proprioception so that's sort of knowing where your ankle is in space Um, so those are local factors but traveling up the system you could have um, knee or hip weaknesses or imbalances that are feeding down and throwing off your kind of biomechanics at the um, ankle. So the first thing you'd look at is your um, spring components. So in the ankle, that's going to be like your dorsiflexors, your plantar flexors. So we're looking at the individual components. I'll touch over this later when we go over sort of the knee as well. Um, So you're going to strengthen those individual components first. One more interesting thing would be what is, and this is something I've experienced myself from sprained ankles, and ever since changing this, I've no longer ever had sprained ankles. Um, but in your opinion, what is something that would cause those limbs to not be strong? Because as human beings, we should be on our feet walking around, have a lot of range of motion and movement for our ankles, so they should be strong. But what's one of the main causes do you think would be why they become weak? Definitely in females um, wearing high heels, you're going to see a shortening of the gastrocnemius, which is like your calf muscle. Yeah, I, I wasn't wearing high heels, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> bit of drag. Um, 
and being in that sort of plantar flex toe point position in males um like especially with tradie boots yep yeah so mine was like that. exactly that mine was um i was doing um apprenticeship for heavy diesel mechanics is i'd spend every single day 12 hours a day six days a week some days in um steel cap boots and anytime i took those off and wore sneakers or runners um i would get severe ankle pain or if i was in in any lateral movement or moving side through uneven surfaces i would sprain my ankle very easily um and another one is hockey players anyone who wears or skiers uh, anyone that wears very high supportive shoes generally don't have very strong um ligaments and muscles stabilize stabilizes yeah. through their ankle it's the same kind of idea that with um, athletes or anything, if they have had recurrent ankle sprains, um, bracing is an option, but we always try as much as possible to wean them off that. Cause like you're saying, we do want the structure to be stable in itself and have to adapt to um, grow that stability or develop that stability. Whereas when, when the um, brace is there, that's a very passive treatment. So your body's not actually adapting or um, strengthening to resolve that. Um, want to talk more on the ankle and ways we can strengthen that? Just while we're on topic, because yeah, sure. Otherwise, we we'll have to come back around it into the end. So we might as well talk about it. Yeah. So yeah. So improving your spring components. So um, looking at the calves, for example, we're going to look at doing um, calf raises, seated calf raises anything where we're um pushing into plantar flexion because that is their specifically role. in barefoot or bare sorry barefooted or in bare feet you yep. want to do these exercises in yeah so increasing the demand on the system by creating more instability but also um because there's so many nerve endings and proprioceptors in your feet and around your ankle because they are your first balance mechanism and everything like that and also just being able to feel obviously when we walk we've got to feel the surface underneath us so doing it in barefoot you're going to get a whole lot more proprioceptive feedback um, and really try to develop that skill essentially and your first time doing it if you haven't um, if you haven't specifically tried training those stabilizers before uh, you will have a, a severity of DOMS or delayed muscle onset <laughs> Um, that you've probably never experienced before for your calves and ankles. You'd be walking very flat-footed. <laughs> um, so once we've sort of strengthened those muscles in isolation, you can do a bit of dorsiflexion, your inversion, eversion, which is your foot turning inwards or outwards. Especially a lot of people sprain their ankle laterally. So that's when you invert your foot. Um, so strengthening those muscles there too. Once the individual muscles are more structurally sound, then we move on to our spring capacity. So that's strengthening the spring as a whole. Um, so a bit more compound type exercises such as leg press, squats, all that kind of thing. We're using the spring as a whole system. And then from there, you're gonna move on to your spring function. So that's actually using your spring as a spring. So using that stretch shortening cycle so this is things like hopping, bounding, um, depth jumps, we're gonna jump off a box jump, all that kind of stuff where they're developing that. You don't look impressed. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I can't stand that pussy shit, but 
Anyway, um, <laughs> things like sprinting, getting up on your toes and doing a correct, like learn how to run properly and how to run straight, I think has, um, like, again, I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with what Olivia said, but that's like the novice. And then as you go, as a progression onwards, I would look at the way the person also runs. Um, and again, a lot of sports, you're not going to have a perfect, unless you're a track sprinter, you're not going to, you're not going to be running in a straight line, but also learning how to run, um, and step laterally or sideways mm -hmm. as well will uh, benefit the athlete or person as well. Yes. That kind of falls into the late stage of step three, um, into step four, we're improving general functions. That's that, um, task specific. So jump the gun a little bit there, but you're exactly <laughs> right. Um, and so that's kind of how you would go through rehabbing um, an ankle and the exact same principles apply to the knee or any hip injuries. The knee, obviously, you're just going to focus more on those hip abductors, so your glute med and your quadriceps because they're the specific muscles that are going to be affecting that kind of joint position, joint loading. But then you go through the exact same protocol of then going on to um, looking at every component of the spring because like I said your weak ankle or issues with your ankle could be actually causing your knee pain it's more of a referred pain so looking at all the components and then we move into spring capacity spring function and then general function and interestingly enough like one of the main reasons um, new clients come in and can't squat flat-footed in other words when they squat their heels lift off the ground it's got really bad ankle mobility and as a strength coach, I'm not, I don't train calves for hypertrophy. I'm not a bodybuilding coach. That's more of what bodybuilders, uh, it's more of a physique um, or an appeal on stage for bodybuilding. Uh, but one of the main reasons I prescribe calves to almost everyone in their first training program is to increase ankle mobility and increase those stabilizers to actually get them moving better which takes pressure and like Olivia said a lot of them come in and go oh I've got sore knees when I squat it's like show me your squat that looks like shit what's wrong what's going on with your ankles <laughs> so let's stretch them out get them under a stretch doing that a few sessions helps a lot of the problem and takes a lot of pressure off the knee and that's that's more of a practical approach um, I take to it yeah definitely we'll touch on a bit of that um, when we go into sort of what we do in our analysis to kind of um, get the jump on these issues. Um, so moving sort of to the up the body, I guess, another typical pain that people come in is low back pain. Um, and so low back pain can fall in a few different categories. We can have like specific or serious pathology, um, or you can have neural, or you can have non-specific low back pain, where it's more likely a bit more of a muscular control um, sense to it. And the first thing you've got to look at is your contributing factors because it's always going to come back to your contributing factors and these are injury specific, so type, severity, history of presenting, complaint, all that kind of stuff, so how, what, when happened. And then looking at someone's medical history and general health, and you're going to do this with any injury. And then specific to this example, so then we're going to look at our local factors. So what is actually going on? At the, side, at the side of the pain, so at your low back, what is, um, how's it moving, all that kind of stuff. But specifically for the low back, we've also got to look at the hips and the thoracic spine because both these areas can either um, be contributing factors or can actually be causing your low back pain. 
So there can actually be nothing wrong with how your low back pain, um, sorry, how your lower back is moving, but because of lack of extension in your hips or your thoracic spine, your back is taking over all that extension and um, that's how you're developing issues. So looking at that as Does well. Does like almost overworking your back? Yeah. So you need, just say you need to achieve 20 degrees extension to reach or something overhead or whatever you're doing, but your thoracic spine is contributing nothing, then it's all going to go into your back. Whereas for some, like in healthy, it might be 10-10, that kind of thing. So your back's just taking that extra um, load essentially there. Uh, so with low back pain, it's one that can have a lot of emotional attachment as well. Um, a lot of like chronic links. But the first thing you really want to look at is sort of movement patterns. So looking at someone's pelvic tilt, how they're actually able to dissociate movement um, into, the back um, into their low back and how they're able to actually keep a neutral spine. Um, that's a big thing. And obviously that translates over to how you cue um, every exercise um, going forwards. That is a good point, and in a perfect world, I like people to do perfect, or like to do exercises perfectly, but if you look at the strongest sport in the world, something that Olivia and I have both competed in, one of the main events is stones or atlas stones. Now, if you've never picked up an atlas stone, you I don't recommend you can actually truly comment on this, but if you have, you know the technique that you need to be able to lift it is the same technique of the absolute worst deadlift you've ever seen in your <laughs> life, which is full loading through the hamstrings, are absolutely fully rounded back, chin into chest. It's almost like a, what's that lift called? Um, the, um, when we are unrolling this one. Jefferson, it's pretty much like a reverse Jefferson curl lifting up a you know, 50, 100 or 200 kilo stone. Um, and if you look at the people that compete in these sports, they've got some of the strongest backs in the world and mm -hmm. they can handle like even in just state competitions or novice competitions or national and international, these people are some of the strongest in what they do and strongest in the gym. Um, and they also have some of the most sound bodies. So saying that everything should be done perfectly, I think is great, always good for beginners, but when you're, once you've reached that intermediate to advanced stage, this is where you can strengthen the body in what would be classified as unsafe positions, um, which is something that I'm big on for coaching, is that uh, as a method I talked about with Max in the deadlift podcast about lower back giant sets and how that's one of our favorite ways of actually bulletproofing the back and creating what we call a back gyna, so where the lower back muscles are so... Olivia's giving me a look, not to say it, but... <laughs> like, very strong-looking spinal erectors on the lower back. So, building a very strong base of lower back, which is going to translate to good strength for your deadlift, for your squat and overhead pressing movements, etc. Um, yeah, going back to... Giving it back to you, Olivia. Yeah, well, on that point, some studies are starting to say that lifting technique doesn't um, contribute or factor in injury risk and it's not always specific to gym um, technique these studies but like you said kind of strengthening through that range and obviously you're most at risk when you're doing something that's not um, you're not accustomed to um, in that sense I guess because 
what is like this is my understanding i'm sure olivia's going to go into more detail uh, about this but like my understanding of injury is your body is always strong enough to be able to do something but injury comes about with acute injury comes about because your body's feels unsafe from doing it so it prevents you from doing it is that right how would you say that i'd say there's two there's two main ways in which pain can occur because pain is always a construct of your brain like you don't actually there's no physical phenomenon of pain it's all constructed in your brain it's just nerve signals are just sent up to your brain and then your brain says oh that's a pain signal it's not it's not in itself a signal of pain so and your brain can construct this in um due to an actual threat so you've actually been stabbed you've actually been stabbed or (laughs) you've actually broken your leg or a perceived threat so that's when your body thinks that it's injured or they think there's a threat to that tissue or they think um anything like that so like cash is saying sometimes it can be because pain is a protective mechanism makes you want to take care of that area so I guess in that sense, it can be kind of a construct to a threatening position. Um, and then other times it's, yeah, your body's not accustomed to that movement. So then that position, in that position, it feels threatened and then a signal sent, which you interpret as pain. Um, Interesting enough that we're talking about pain and how that's uh, body's mechanism to protect a certain area is, this is a little bit off topic, but I read the other day about how most heart attacks occur between 9am and sorry 8am and 9am on Monday mornings majority of all heart attacks occur which is when most people are getting up to go to work and most of the time it's because they're literally dying of a broken heart or broken dreams of not pursuing what they want in life um yeah anyway moving on <laughs> so uh, moral of the story of that was viciously attack and pursue your dreams until you get there otherwise <laughs> who knows you could die of a broken heart <laughs> always a good message <laughs> um so yeah in low back pain you're looking at movement patterns and then you're looking at independent motor performance and recruitment so looking at how each um muscle group in the thoracic spine lower back and hips are mainly glutes um how that's all moving and the ability to recruit those sections independently um the last one we'll kind of go over is shoulder pain because that's another common one that you'll come across um one of the most common ones is sort of like impingement so that's when you're going to get a compression of usually um your supraspinatus tendon but it can often involve um, more of the rotator cuff in that subacromial space so that's kind of just the tip of your shoulder (laughs) just the tip (laughs) um so here what we're going to what we're going to look at in the rehab of this is looking at your rotator cuff strength and stability because that's the main group (laughs) touching me (laughs) the main group that stabilizes your shoulder and you're also going to look at your scapulothoracic rhythm so that's how your scapula moves on your thoracic cage so that protraction retraction um, depression elevation so moving your scap up and down and inwards and outwards basically 
just touching on that, sorry to interrupt there, but I noticed with some clients, uh, especially clients, because I, I get a lot of clients who are professionals in what they do, and um, a large majority of them sit for a lot of their day at a desk mm-hmm. or um, at a computer, and some, once they get to their 40s, literally have no movement through the scap, can't lift it up, down, sideways, back to front, like, there's no yeah. movement there, so... We spend probably the first four weeks just teaching them how to move that area of their body, which makes a tremendous difference in not only their movement and mobility, but also in their confidence because their posture is being pulled back into a good position. Um, sorry, all yours? Yeah, no, definitely. And that kind of relates to the next point that when that scapula isn't moving freely and sort of gliding along your rib cage, that's when you're going to interrupt that scapular glenohumeral, which is basically scapula and shoulder joint rhythm. Because whenever you're reaching over arms, so um, sorry, overhead, so either extending or when you're reaching out to the side, there should be a percentage of your scapular movement that actually contributes to your overall range. And when you don't get that movement, just like you're saying, when they're quite stiff, that's when your biomechanics of how your shoulder's moving is really distorted and that's when you're going to get pain because you're going to get certain things compressed certain things are jutting against each other so exactly like you said spending that time on learning how to move the scapula and how to get that kind of independent setting which then once you've progressed in that is crucial to kind of your lifting technique anyway so you're kind of setting the baseline it's not wasted time um, and that's going to help so anything like um, scapular push-ups um, scapula hangs, that kind of thing is going to help. What are your exercises? For getting the scap moving? Yeah. Um, well, exactly that. Even just literally hanging there and doing the scap pull-up where yeah. it's just pulling up for the scap. But the big one, big one for me is um, once they do that, I wouldn't make them do that every session. I would actually get them under a barbell or I'd get them doing a pull-up. If they can do a weighted pull-up, um, getting them to actually pull their shoulder blades tight and actually get their chest to the bar and open their chest up as they pull up. So it's probably one of the biggest mistakes I see people do, especially um, where people doing classes or um, workouts for time. It's like get the most amount of reps in for time. Um, is their pull-ups end up looking like shit and that's how the majority of people do them in the gym is they pull everything with their arms and shoulders, uh, but then... They're trying to set the shoulder blades down at the bottom. It's like, well, if you hold your shoulder blades down through the whole movement, you'll get the most out of your back and you're working one of the largest muscles, well, the largest muscle in your upper body, which is the lat. Yeah. Or lats, pair of lats there. There's two of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, so if you can work that when you're doing your pull-up, you would actually have a stronger pull-up and you'd be able to get more reps. So just uh, just food for thought there. Yeah, definitely. And that feeds into, like you were saying, um, better posture. And by that, I mean... Um, bringing the shoulders back so getting out of that rounded position or that kyphosis and that's probably um, quite a large contributor especially in modern society with um, sitting at computers where your arms are kind of out rested in front you've likely got an elevated or depressed scapula and you're in that rounded position so big thing for the shoulder yeah driving's the exact same position really as, as being at a computer so getting out of that position is a massive thing for well, shoulder injury you know, shoulder health such a big part of our society now i shouldn't say it's an issue because it's part of everyday life there's ways it's like yin and yang there's always going to be a plus and negative um negative about the fact that we have the automobile to get us from point a to point b 
and that we now have a desk and a computer where we can send emails instead of having to walk down to the post office and post a letter to get our point across to the person on the other side of the world that got your message wrong, um, is that we're now sitting much more than ever. So we wake up in the morning, um, we sit down and we eat our cereal or whatever you eat. If you like me, you might eat steak or eggs. Um, then you go sit in the car and then you get to work. Uh, you walk up one flight of stairs, you go, that was hard work. You sit at your desk, 12 hours later, you hop back in your car, sit it down, get home, sit in front of a box, turn it on, then you go lay in bed. Um, so like that's a typical day for a lot of people. Um, and again, the thing of convenience nowadays has created uh, life where we're always in a, what's the word that you used? Kyphosis? Yeah, kyphosis. Yeah. So um, state, so your body's always rounded, or your shoulder's always rounded and everything's mm-hmm. pulling you forward. So. Something that I tell people who generally live this life, even though they might train or they might train three times a week, which is only three hours out of um, seven days, which is not a lot, it's like not even 1%, um, is just throughout the day, every hour, have a reminder, go off on your phone, just to sit up, pull your chest up tall, pull your shoulder blades back and let yourself stretch for a minute and then get back into your work. Because if you can do that, more frequently, that's just going to create help create more movement through your um, through your scalps. Yeah, sure, and that's basically um, doing prehab, which is kind of a weird word. I don't even know if it's a technical word. That's what we've um, everyone calls it. So that prehabilitation. So this is prevention before an actual injury occurs. So it's identifying weak points that are vulnerable to future injury or. A, a current source of pain that you're not gonna, you don't want it to get worse. Um, and so yeah, attacking it before there's an actual injury sustained or you go into that kind of chronic or increased pain. Um, when it comes to prehab, I do kind of like the take that I've heard from Andrew Locke and that's um, Sebastian Oreb about don't punish what is strong, strengthen what is weak. You know, I, I only found out a couple of weeks ago who Sebastian Oreb is. <laughs> I've only ever known him as Australian, Australian strength coach. <laughs> so just for you people, in case you don't know who Sebastian is, um, like I said, I don't think that's his actual name. I think on his birth certificate, it actually says the Australian strength <laughs> coach. So I'm going to go with that belief. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> um, so for example, the typical ones would be like, oh, I've got overactive or dominant traps or quads and they're causing some sort of pain. Oh, I, lo- I can't like- wait to, I can't wait to say, talk on this, but I'll let you finish. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm so excited. Strengthen the other muscles to bring them up to um, part rather than kind of attack your weaknesses, um, attack your strengths. She said that so nicely. So when people say they're quad dominant, I just tell them they're idiots because they don't know how to use their hamstrings. They're like, (laughs) my what? They're like, I'm like, you you know those those meaty flabby things like on the back (laughs) of your legs? Like those things that you never use. So use those. Um, Yeah. So generally if someone's got quad dominance because they've never been able to use their hamstrings in their life and they use their quads and everything instead of actually going, huh, there's another muscle on the back of my leg that I should use. Um, same with traps. Everyone's like, oh, I'm so trap dominant. No, you're just an idiot who doesn't know how to do a fucking pull up or lat pull down properly or a seated row. You do everything through your shoulders instead of doing it through, there's like, where your, where your shoulder is and where your butt is, there's a massive space where muscle 
is or should be that doesn't exist because you do it all with your traps it's not because you're trap dominant it's just because you don't know how to use those other muscles so i recommend get yourself a coach that has half a brain who can teach you how to do the exercises properly <laughs> that's more rant done uh, uh, move on. i'm sure there's more to come uh, there's definitely more to come <laughs> so how we personally address this and the term that i'm about to use is a bit contentious but Structural balance and a postural assessment. Oh, I love that. I love I love when people go structural balance. But no, anyway, move. I'll let Olivia talk first. It's more for a lack of better term. Where what we what we're actually looking at is if you're structurally sound and taking account to um, muscle imbalances. So how the synergy of muscles is working and weaknesses in the operation that is gonna predispose you to certain postures because if you are um, dominant or tight through your chest and weaker through your sort of like rhomboids and setting muscles that's going to pull you into a kyphosis so that's where we're looking at an imbalance of structure that's contributing to that posture which is very common because we're talking about you know where we mainly or well, i mainly work in the gym um they see a lot of guys who just train chest that's it and they wonder why they're getting shoulder issues and they got really rounded and funny enough it actually makes their chest look smaller because you think like you can just do this sitting there yourself roll your shoulders forward and let your chest cave in and look at how not big your chest looks <laughs> which is what happens to every guy when they only train chest um uh, there's a good rule of thumb that's been around for like ever, ever since weightlifting became popular is that for every chest exercise you do you do a back exercise to pull the muscles back into place mm -hmm. which is stem from bodybuilding and creating a good physique because you've never seen any bodybuilder decent bodybuilder walk around with their chest caved in and their shoulders rounded with no back muscles because it looks shit um so yeah don't do that make sure that you actually train one-to-one -one with a chest exercise and back exercise yeah the push push pulls exactly i actually do this like on my chest day i have two push exercises one pull exercise and then on my second chest day i switch around where i have two pull exercises and one chest exercise did i say that right yep yep come um yeah so back to kind of with prehab so for me there's kind of two reasons why you're going to put this into practice either one um, you've identified predisposing factors so a posture analysis may show like for example we're talking about that rounded shoulders poor thoracic extension you've got poor scapular movement you may not have shoulder pain yet but these are flags of potential shoulder issues in the future so we're before rather than waiting for the pain to come on and be like oh let's correct it we're going to correct this before so that's prehab Another example is if you've got an activity risk factor. So some tasks demand more from certain muscle groups or put certain joints at greater risk than others. So um, typical examples are like the rotator cuff in swimmers and weightlifters or the knees in like netballers or any change of direction sports. So for these groups, they may not have anything um, structurally wrong with them they might have great posture and everything but these muscles have to be exceptionally strong um, to support their activity so you're going to have sort of prehab exercise again we're preventing an injury 
And so respectively for those two groups, you're gonna focus on rotator cuff exercises, um, strengthening the shoulder stabilizers. And in the other group, you kind of glute med work, making sure it's, um, and your uh, quads, making sure these are specifically strong. Anything on that? No, I like, I like what you said, that was oh. great. That's the first. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so essentially we're attempting to remove these... I like these everything you say. <laughs> we're removing these weak links, um, weak links and preventing injury. Um, last thing I really want to touch on is regardless of your injury mechanism or your rehab pathway, it should always be active. Um, of course, there's an element of rest, especially in the initial stage, letting the inflammation go down, promote tissue recovery. When we're talking about rehab, we're trying to specifically talk more about um, our general clients who would listen to this and athletes as themselves, not someone who is going through rehab who broke both arms and both legs. Like yeah. generally, if you are in that situation, the non you, you won't be doing uh, much activity. No. <laughs> um, uh, you'll be taking a slow road uphill to recover. But again, we're talking about people who have more minor to moderate injuries. Yeah. Uh, where it might be sprains. Uh, it might we're be more looking tears. at musculoskeletal, so yep. muscle, tendon, ligament, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. And that there, you can always work around with it. And like Definitely. a good example is um, my client who, or our client, I should say, Niall, who competed on the weekend. Three weeks out of comp, he dislocated his finger. And that was, that, that was a mess, like, he come in the next day to do his deadlift session three weeks out of comp and he pushed through, got it done, but his finger was so sore to the point it started bleeding. I was like, okay, we should, we should stop there. Um, and that decision. to, to, to an average person, um, or average, average minded person, I should say, they would have pulled out and gone, nah, that's too hard. I can't, there's no way I could compete with this finger that way. Um, he's still going on Saturday and hit a PB on his deadlifts more than ever done before and um, head off to him because pushing through pain like that, especially something that has been dislocated or being pulled out of place, is, um, takes a certain level of mental toughness that not many do experience every day. Yeah, so touching on that, the big thing that can influence your pain state and your recovery, like so how quickly you're going to get better is your psychological factors. So your attitudes, beliefs, um, and emotions towards your pain is really gonna affect how quickly you get over it. Because like I said, pain is constructed in the brain. Um, so if you continuously believe you're not gonna get better, or you start catastrophizing the situation, or anything like that, or there's compensation involved where you gotta prove that you're in pain, that's gonna just worsen your outcome. So just accepting that pain is a normal process and it is a protective process it's your body protecting itself um but then getting sort of getting straight into your active rehabilitation like cash um was saying that can just be staying active in general um but just working around your injury but it's also being active in your rehab so not just relying on us physios to give you a massage and you're just going to tape it and you're going to use crutches or something like that and you're going to take lots of anti-inflammatories and pain medication because they're all passive and they're not giving you like autonomy and determination in your own recovery so you have to be involved in the decision making of your therapy in your goal setting but also doing actually doing some exercises to get better 
because um, there's only so much exactly like PT there's only so much we can tell you to drop body fat if you're not going to do it it's not going to happen so yeah um, that's kind of the end message that I have is just being active in your rehab awesome thank you for that Olivia I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and have an awesome night slash day slash morning, whatever time you're listening to. Thanks, guys. Bye.